This is a Federal News Network podcast. Federal contractors only want two things at the moment, besides contracts, that is. One is for Congress, specifically the Senate, to get on with the National Defense Authorization Law already. And two, for the administration to sort out an increasingly convoluted vaccine mandate. We get the lowdown from the president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, David Berteau. And David, let's talk about the NDAA. The House has done its work. The Senate has yet to finish its bill. And then there's the reconciliation and contractors are waiting for lots of provisions. Right, Tom. And the Senate at the committee level, the Senate Armed Services level, marked up the bill way back in the summer, but it didn't release the text until just recently. And now the question is, When will it come to the Senate floor? As you know, the House has completed its work. There were lots of amendments, over 800 amendments offered in the House. Some of them made it into the bill. One of the things that we watch for is amendments that weren't a good idea that fail in the House, but then reemerge in the Senate. But the real challenge is going to come when the two bills have to be reconciled. And uh, that's where PSC comes into play is looking at the differences and figuring out what's in the best interest of contractors. There's one item in particular that we're really focusing on, and that's our old friend, Section 3610 from the original CARES Act in March of 2020. This authorizes the government to reimburse companies for employees who, for whatever reason, can't access the facility to work. That provision expired with the expiration of the appropriations bill on September 30th. It was not included in the CR, but there is language in the House bill that we hope would be in the Senate bill as well, and we could expand on that in conference. COVID has not gone away. Moving on to the issue of the vaccine mandate, and by the way, Colin Powell was twice vaccinated, showing the mysteriousness of this disease and how little we yet actually know when push comes to shove. Contractors are facing just a tougher and tougher environment that there's a federal vaccine mandate for contractors. And yet some states like Texas find companies who comply with vaccine mandates. The governor issued an executive order, which under the Texas uh, rules uh, has the effect of law that will fine a company that issues a mandate. Of course, any government contractor operating in the state of Texas is going to be subject to the FAR clause. And that contract clause uh, took effect October 15th, last Friday, and will be inserted into all new contracts, all new task orders, all options that are exercised, and all extensions of existing contracts. We've run into this situation before where the state will impose a penalty that's in direct contradiction to what the federal guidance is. And eventually, Tom, this works out in favor of, not surprisingly, the federal government. But in the meantime, companies are caught in a bind. And we saw this with a tax in California some years ago where essentially you had to pay the tax or the state would show up and start seizing your property and selling it to satisfy the tax. Ultimately, you got your money back, but this is a huge burden on companies uh, for this kind of disconnect. And it's particularly impactful on small businesses where we're seeing a lot of the negative impacts of the mandate. Not that it's bad to have the vaccine. It's a good idea to have the vaccine, but companies also have to keep their workers or they go out of business. Sure. We're speaking with David Berteau. He is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. And the other question is, there's a lot of discussion about how federal employees with religious objections and their applications there to to get out of the vaccine, contractors don't have that mechanism, or at least the potential for that mechanism, like federal employees do. The, the government has issued a template for those applications for accommodations, and there's two ways in which an employee can apply for those accommodations. One is under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, and that's for a violation of sincerely held religious beliefs 
uh, and the courts have wrestled with what that question means of sincerely held beliefs. And the second is under the Americans with Disabilities Act, if you have some medical reason why you shouldn't be vaccinated. Individuals who work for a company can apply for such accommodations. There's no government-wide template, and so each company has to set up its own procedures for that. But the real question that has not been answered in the guidance so far is, once those employees have successfully applied for such accommodations, how do you accommodate them under the vaccine mandate? If they're not going to be vaccinated, presumably you want them to continue working. Can they come to work and show as private sector companies will presumably be able to do under the soon to be issued OSHA rules? Will they be able to show a negative test result within the last X amount of time? And that allows them to come to work with masking and distancing and all the other characteristics that are necessary for public safety. The goal of the executive order says workplace safety, but the implementation has been increase the number of vaccines. If we expand that goal back to the original objective of workplace safety, you have to accommodate workers under ADA or Civil Rights Act. You have to be able to have them keep working. And so far, the guidance is ambiguous at best on this point. It is one of the most important things that need to be ironed out. And it needs to be ironed out quickly because they're putting this contract clause into contracts. Yeah. What do you remember seeing with respect to what contracting officers on the ground are doing? Well, there's an interesting twist in the guidance, and it basically says December 8th is the deadline for all employees to be fully vaccinated. That means two weeks after your last dose. So if it's Johnson & Johnson, you have two weeks and a day. If it's uh, one of the others, you have five or six weeks and a day. Five or six weeks to December 8th essentially starts next week. So what we're already seeing, there's a second part of that that says if the contract is awarded after December 8th, then you have until the start date of the contract to comply with the vaccine mandate. What we're seeing, though, in the cases of some agencies, and VA is particularly troublesome here, is they're inserting it into contracts that are being issued now with a start date, say, of next week or the week after that. And they're saying, well, you have to be fully vaccinated by that. It's chronologically impossible to get your unvaccinated employees fully vaccinated in less than the amount of time it takes. And yet contracting officers are ignoring that. And this puts not only the companies and their workers at risk, It puts the delivery of the services that are critical for the success of the government, whether it's VA healthcare or whether it's in some other agencies exercise. This has got to be fixed. Yeah, this is playing out in so many areas of the economy, the Chicago police, different school teachers and school groups. And golly, I don't know where it's going to all head in the end. But this FAR clause, though, is there now. And it looks differently depending on which agency you're dealing with. Well, and we're looking at the federal civilian workforce as well. They have a different deadline of November 22nd, but they have a different procedure for dealing with those who are unvaccinated. Obviously, you go into the regular routine of Title V coverage of disciplining employees. Companies have less flexibility today. And, you know, there are success stories out there, Tom, but you look at United Airlines, which has been a very good success story. But most of the ink ignores two things. Number one is the CEO has been working this since last January. So it's not something you can implement overnight in two weeks or five weeks, right? And number two is they've got a substantial number of employees who are operating under accommodations, either medical accommodations or religious accommodations. Those have got to be taken into account on the federal government side as well. And the impact here is particularly hard, again, on small companies, because if you lose your workers, you won't be able to perform on the contract. If you keep your workers, you'll be terminated based upon violating the contract clause. 
Boy, you talk about a Hobson's choice. That's a tough call to ask any small business to go through. That is a tough one. Well, maybe some people in the medical profession on Halloween can have two setups. You know, kids come to this door for candy. Adults go around to the side for a vaccine. That's a great idea. We'll look at that for our neighborhood. All right. And finally, we should note yesterday's loss of General Powell, Secretary of State Powell. You knew him in your Pentagon days back when he was a two-star. I did. I worked very closely with him when he was the two-star military assistant to Casper Weinberger, the Secretary of Defense. I was the special assistant to Will Taft, who was the Deputy Secretary of Defense. We were in meetings three or four times a day, oftentimes more than that, and often late into the evening. Some very interesting times. And of course, he was a tremendous asset there. And that was the starting time of the Packard Commission, which led ultimately to the internal decisions on Goldwater Nichols and the creation of the Undersecretary for Acquisition. Major, major aspects that have affected contracts for many, many years. Then when he became chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under Dick Cheney, I was working in the Pentagon as well at the time worked more closely with him than I have with any other chairman. Just a tremendous American, thoughtful, thorough, and always thought through to the end of what he was thinking before he started at the beginning, which we could use more of today. Sure, we could. David Berto is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, 
the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, Absolutely. Um, What I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to, to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that, I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. 
And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing, if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WAPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.